7 billion humans on Earth can't all like the same drink. That's why Circle K has Polar Pop and Froster. Pick your flavors and make that 1 in 7 billion mix just right for you. Polar Pop and Froster, just 79 cents each at Circle K. Limited time only at participating locations. Shut up and sit down. terrible month for me. We had some bad weather in my general vicinity of the country, as you might have known. My parents had a a few minor issues, lost a couple, lost a shed, basically. They have a lawn storage shed. It's gone. We don't know where it was, the contents of which are both missing and a mystery because it had been so long since either one of them had been in it, they have no idea what they lost. Ten years from now, my mom's going to be like, oh, you know what? I had that in the shed we lost in the tornado. And so everything that goes missing from now on in my mom's life is going to be in that shed that was lost in the tornado. Anyways, we had a little bit of roof damage, not much. A little irritating. Mostly what was the most irritating, and this is terrible and I feel bad because there was some damage and people and some people died, but the most irritating part of the entire experience was that it fucked up my DVR and I missed some of my shows. And I'm like an asshole. I'm a total asshole and I shouldn't feel that way about it, but I do. So I'm admitting it. I'm an asshole. It's just, you know, it's a first world problem. It's t- it's terrible. I should, but I'm not even ashamed of myself. This is worse. It's worse. It's worse than that. So, anyways, <clears throat> tonight we're going to talk about scene structure. And when we talked about plot, I say we, I mean me. When I rambled on about plot for two hours, or it might have been less than two hours. There could have been some off-topic rambling, as I am known to do. Um, scene structure. When we talked about plot, we talked about how a plot is built to tell a story, and you have a beginning, a middle, and an end. Well, the same can be said for a scene. When you build a story, you bring together a series of scenes to create that story, whether you do it in chapter format or if you just do like a single chapter short story where it's like 10 to 15,000 words, whatever. Um, While I'm on the subject of that, do you know, okay, the average commercial novel chapter is about 5,000 words. Some are less, some are between 3,000 and 4,000, but the average is around five. It, it, it depends really on the structure of the novel. So let's say you're writing a a 50k uh, novel for publication. That's going to be about 20 chapters, 
And that's how they're divided for publication, and that's how the structure of a novel is created. And if you look at, if you go and you pluck a book off your shelf, just an average book, you're going to see that the chapters tend to even out in the page numbers, so like 20 pages per chapter. And the reason that happens is it's both a uh, production issue, um, the way books that were originally printed and how we've come to do them today. Um, when you look at the structure, the, the physical structure of a book, you need to keep in mind that that structure is hundreds of years old. When the first um, books started to be put together, they were done a certain way, and people followed that assessment, and they started doing it that way, and that's how it came to be. And when the printing press came into play, books were printed with plates, and these plates had to be individually lettered. And the font was weird and thick. So books that were printed a very long time ago were often very large, very heavy, and often difficult to read because the font is so weird. Now, when we move from the, the manual printing press to a automatic printing press, we still had the um, issue with fonts and the issue of space on a page. And publishers asked that your book be formatted a certain way. That's why it used to be, it's not true now, used to be you would put two spaces after each sentence. This was not some arbitrary grammar rule. This is, was a rule designed specifically for the printing. It created a space between sentences that allowed um, sentences to be distributed equally across the page without it, being, without it looking weird and being difficult to print. Now, as we've come into a more modern era, that's fallen out of practice. Um, they don't expect you to do that anymore. And it doesn't really matter often what kind of font you send your material to a publisher in as long as it's readable. And if it's a digital file, they're going to change it anyway. My agent tells me point blank, everything she reads, she puts in Times New Roman. I hate Times New Roman. Apparently she loves it. So, okay. So when it comes to the structure of a scene, what I do um, when I'm creating a plot Say I'm going to have 20 chapters. In each chapter, I have a goal. So say, I, okay, 20 chapters, 20 goals. And these goals can be simple or they can be complicated. It's entirely up to you. In the structure of a chapter, you have, if you're going to go by a commercial standpoint, two to three scenes sometimes four. If your chapter's 10,000 words, you're going to have more things. Um, between five and seven, I would say, would be a good number, maybe less. It, it just depends on how involved um, your, your plot is at that point. Um, but don't anticipate that uh, it be that way every time, because you need to vary the length of your chapters, and you need to vary, not chapters, you need to vary the length of your scenes. Your chapter should not, I'm not telling you to make your chapters uniform, like they all have to be exactly 5,000 words, but make it consistent. 
is that creates a rhythm in the reading for the reader. And this is a physical thing more than a, um, a craft issue. When you create a rhythm for your story, it allows for a more comfortable and easier reading experience. Because the last thing you want to do is to make your reader dread opening up your story or your book. So you need to create it in such a way that it doesn't become a, a task or a job, so to speak. Because the thing is, is when you're reading, and if you're a long-time reader like me, you'll be like, okay, I'll read one chapter. And if that chapter is 5,000 words, that's pretty easy to accomplish. But if that chapter is 10,000 words and it's 2 o'clock in the morning, you're going to be kind of pissed because you want to stop at a point that works. You really do um, as a reader. So you get mad at the writer <laughs> if there's not some kind of consistency. in the um, formatting of the novel or the story. <laughs> Zandris in the chat room says, I hate writers that end every single chapter on a cliffhanger. I hate that too. It's a gimmick. It's, it's poor craft. It is, it is very poor craft. If you can't bring your reader to the table every time, whether there's a cliffhanger or not, you're not doing your job as a writer. And this is, um, I don't often do cliffhangers from my point of view. Sometimes I get accused of it. I did it recently with Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond. That was definitely a um, cliffhanger. Um, I did that on purpose. I ended it there because, and this goes back to scene and, cha and chapter structure. Major events need to be isolated um, into chapters. So you have, for instance, for those of you who are reading the Harry Potter and the Soulmate Bond, at the end of Chapter 24, Harry is cursed, and it's a very bad curse. And he is um, in the afterlife with his parents, and he's talking with them for the first time. And I, I did this as kind of a um, a canon continuity thing because Harry does experience this in canon as well where he where he dies and he goes to the afterlife and he speaks to Dumbledore. Well, in, in the soulmate bond, Dumbledore is not there because Dumbledore is still alive. And so Lily and James meet Harry. And um, Hermione, meanwhile, has been asked to participate in a ritual that will bring Harry's soul back to Earth. And she's preparing for this and she's never done ritual magic as a practitioner. She's she's participated in it as a you know, as a just part of the coven, her her mother's coven, but she's never done it herself. And the reason I ended it where I ended it is because it was a very natural place to end it. Because Harry's in doubt, Hermione is determined, um, and she is ready to go to the wall for Harry and so it had to end there because the next scene opens with the ritual that she's going to do. And that's a huge event. And you, I don't like to pack huge events into one chapter because it, um, uh, it, it creates more tension than it should. So let's go back to scene structure and what that means. When you build scenes, 
Each scene within your chapter has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And your chapter has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And your book, your story, has a beginning, a middle, and an end. So in truth, a scene is a miniature story inside your novel. And your chapter is a slightly larger story inside your novel. Does that make sense? I hope that makes sense. So one of the ways you can build suspense is to shorten your scenes. Don't be, you know what I hate? I hate those one-chapter scenes I see on fanfiction.net. I hate that shit. I hate it. The only thing I hate worse is when you, they actually, like, put little dashes and put the word scene break in between your scenes. It really pisses me off. I mean, I've closed stories for that alone. It's so annoying. Oh, it's worse than bad dialogue mechanics. I mean, like, literally, it's like one paragraph. It's a one-paragraph scene, and that's considered a chapter, and they break it, and I said that's all you get. And No, that's just stupid. That's not how you build tension. That's how you irritate your reader. When... You're building a chapter. If you create small scenes and you pile them on top, on top, on top, and you have this action building, building, building. The thing is, is that writers do this naturally. This isn't something you have to think about. After you've been doing it for a while, you're just going to do it automatically. So, but if you don't, now's the time to think about it and how that works. So if you build short scenes, short, complete scenes that give your reader information and forward your story. They move your story. They move your characters. If they don't move your story and they're not moving your characters, this scene has no place in your book and should be removed. This is difficult for some people, I know, because you love your words. I love my words. But sometimes you create something, and no matter how awesome it is, it really has no place in your story and should be removed. If it doesn't advance your characters or your story or your plot, it it needs to go. So when you're building a chapter and you have your scenes planned out, you have your chapter goal and you have your scenes, whether you do this on paper or it's just like a mental plan that you've created for yourself, ever how you do it's fine. It's all fine. I'm not going to advocate that you spend the rest of your life plotting a book and never writing another book again because some of the people do that. They get all messed up in the plot process, and then they stop writing. So you don't want to do that. But you've created this scene structure where you've got your scenes piling on top of each other to create tension. And that builds reader anticipation, and it, it builds excitement for your story. And it makes the reading seem it's faster even if it's not physically faster for the reader, it it will spawn excitement in the plot if you do it correctly. If you do it wrong, you're just going to annoy the fuck out of your reader. So you have to be subtle. And some of us aren't good at subtle. I'm not particularly good at subtle. I try. I try. I think I'm better on paper at subtle than I am in real life at subtle. But anyways, so... When it comes to the scene, 
after <laughs> after you've made your choices as far as the chapter goal is and the scene, uh, and the goals for each scene if you want to go that far and I do sometimes it just depends like you know how I'm going to be building it and and what I need the reader to take away from the scene like if it's a scene um like for instance when I open ties that bind the first scene you see is Elizabeth and John and they're on Atlantis and what I wanted readers to take away from that scene, what I wanted to take away from that scene, what I wanted to be said about that scene was that here's John who they've gone through a lot, him and Elizabeth at this point, and John has has dedicated himself to the survival of Atlantis. And so when he's told that there is somebody on Earth that could make their life easier. He immediately, and without really even thinking about it, he immediately makes the sacrifice play. And that is the introduction of John and Ties That Bind. He is that person who will step up and make the play, whether it's flying a nuclear bomb to a race ship, whether it's taking a bullet, like he did in what might have been, or whether it's collaring somebody he's never met for the good of the expedition. And so that's how you get introduced to John. And when you're introduced to McKay, it's I wanted the reader to come away from that scene feeling kind of sick and furious, because here is somebody who is brilliant and unappreciated in his position at the SGC. And it takes a tone where John and Elizabeth, who really, you know, the thing is, is that John and Elizabeth have gone through so much on Atlantis. And Atlantis has been a big, huge, traumatic experience for them. And yet they kind of come back to Earth on a rescue mission. And their rescue mission is Rodney. And they're going to rescue him from evil, bad Sam Carter, right? So when you meet Rodney, you can tell he's frustrated and, and at this point demoralized by his situation at the SGC. And that was my goal. I wanted the reader to come away kind of mad and kind of sick, just pissed, you know. But also, I wanted them to come away thinking that, you know, that John and Elizabeth, despite all their crap and all their trial, have literally come back to Earth to rescue Rodney, and and that was the whole point. And so when you build scenes like that and you can push the point home without actually saying it, you've really accomplished something as a writer. When... you have your goals and you meet your goals and you can do it without saying it, it creates a uh, relationship between you and your reader that can be very intimate. They start to anticipate and expect things. So it's awesome when you can take somebody who reads your work a lot, who sees how you craft scenes and stories and chapters, and surprise them. So when you can surprise somebody, that's really exciting as a reader, but, as a writer. But you don't want to do it too often because that just gets annoying. 
it gets really annoying. And that goes back to that cliffhanger crap that we were talking about earlier. When you craft a legitimate, I'm doing this on purpose to you, cliffhanger, you have to commit and you have to bring it. And you can't do it every single time because it loses its weight. As a writer, when you create a situation that is like extremely shocking, out of the blue, holy shit, what did she do? And then you stop the chapter. It's powerful. It's exciting and it's powerful to the reader. But if you do it every single time you close a chapter, you create a situation where your reader's going to start to resent you and resent the project or even stop reading the work altogether because you're not building suspense. You are cock-teasing. And there is absolutely no excuse for being a cock-tease. Just... I'm going to put that out there for you bitches. Don't be a cock tease. It's, it's really inappropriate. If you on purpose get a cock hard, it's your responsibility to you know, take care of it. Now, if a man's cock gets hard on its own with no provocation on your part, that's his problem. But if you're going to stick your hand down a man's pants and play with something, you need to bring it. And that's what I'm talking about. That's what I'm talking about. If... You're going to tease your reader. You have to satisfy your reader. <laughs> and if you get a cock hard, it, it, uh, yeah, yeah, it's your responsibility. And those, not every erection a man has is a woman's responsibility or his partner's responsibility. I'm just saying that if you, on purpose, get somebody aroused, male or female, that it is extremely inappropriate not to take care of them. You know, don't be an asshole. Just just don't. That's just terrible. The only thing worse than a cock tease is a quit tease, okay? I'm just I'm put that out there for you. Xanders brings up something, and I'm pretty sure I'm saying her name wrong. Whatever. Um, sorry. I didn't mean that whatever, kind of. I mean, anyways. Um, the most annoying thing about fan fiction writers is trolling for reviews. It is annoying. I would not say it's the most annoying thing, because there's something worse. Now, I'm going to go off on a little rant, this little tangent, which is great, because I'm, I'm 37 minutes in, and this is not my first one at all, is it? Mm-hmm. Anyways, okay, let me tell you what the most annoying fucking thing I see in fandom is. And it's a recent development for me. I was over on an archive of our own, and I opened up a story. And I have a 22-inch monitor. I want to put that out there for you. Actually, I have two of them. Um, I have two 22-inch monitors, and I had the browser open all the way. And I had to scroll down. I had to page down twice to get to the fucking story because of all the goddamn tags. I appreciate tags as much as the next person, but you don't need a 100 of them. 
You really don't. You don't fucking need a hundred of them. It is, oh my God, it is stab you in the head annoying. That's how fucking annoying that is. But as annoying as that is, I think trolling for reviews is um, equal. What is worse, blackmailing for reviews. Or worse, I see this all the time, reviews inspire me to write faster. If you've ever put this on your fic or on your live journal or your website, fuck you. Just fuck you. I did not read the rest of your story. Even though it was complete and the first chapter was great, I got to the end chapter and that's what you had down there and I stopped reading it and fuck you for disappointing me and fuck you for irritating me and fuck you I really want to read the rest of your story but now I'm so goddamn irritated with you I never will be able to. So fuck you. There we go. I'm everybody's type. Azura just said that I wasn't her type, and that's bullshit. That's bullshit. I transcend sexual orientation and gender. I'm everybody's fucking type, and you better believe it. You know, I'm a self-promoter. I have my own radio show. I have a Twitter. I have a Facebook I put all those links up so everybody can stalk me. I'm just put that out there with you. Just yeah, you can just talk the shit out of me. I don't care as long as you don't show up in my house. If you show up in my house, I'm I have a gun. Keep that in mind. I'm not threatening you. I'm just I'm warning you in advance that I'm armed and I have a bad attitude. At any rate, I'm a self promoter. I like my own work. I actually write for myself. I find my own work very entertaining. Sometimes I read my own shit instead of going to look for somebody else's because I know I won't be disappointed in my own shit. Yeah, okay, so I'm a fan of myself. I admit this, but I hate it when I'm reading a summary on somebody's work and they tell me how great they are. or how great their story is. Because nine times out of ten, if you're bragging in the summary about how great your work is, it's not that great. Sorry. No, 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 I'm not sorry. I'm not sorry at all. If you're putting on your fic, this is a great one. You have to read it. I'm not going to read it because I already know it sucks. Is that arrogant? Probably. Don't give a shit. I have no shits to give. None, not a, not a, it makes me laugh my ass off every time I see it, and I can't take you seriously. Never will. Anyways, back to scenes. Once you've built your scenes, and you've built your chapters, and you've built your story, and you're done, the first thing you do in the editing phase of your second draft, oh yes, second draft. The average professional project has three drafts by the author, a fourth and a fifth by line editors and content editors with a publisher. So by the time it sees publication, it's gone through 
five or six revisions, sometimes seven, depending on um, how bad your grammar is. Yeah. Uh, anyways, <clears throat> there you go. Your second draft, your goal, we all write it. I write it. I could probably cut what might have been by 50 or 60,000 words, to be perfectly honest, because there's a lot of bullshit in it. Unnecessary scenes that make no, that have no purpose, but they amuse me. That's what I'm talking about. So when you go back through your draft, you have to look at your scenes individually and ask yourself, do they further your plot? Do they advance your characters and motivations as far as external and internal motivations for your character and your plot, are you moving? If you're not moving, it needs to go. If it does not give your reader information they need to continue the story, you have to determine whether or not it's absolutely necessary. And if it's not, you need to cut it. Because your goal when you're writing professionally, is to tighten, to have a really tight plot and a tight story with scenes that are sharp, like knives. And you want to really just slim it down. J.K. Rowling is pretty bad at this, by the way. And her editors let her get away with it because she was famous. You'll notice that out of all of her projects, as far as Harry Potter is concerned, that the first one, is the tightest of all of the books. The others got bloated. Very bloated. Ties that bind on my, on my site is a little tighter than um, the rest of my fan fiction. And, and I don't know if that's because I... I focused on Ties that bind a lot before I ever published it. I mean, I, I read through it I don't know, 50 or 60 times and, t and cut things and put things in. So there was a lot of revisions done on Ties That Bond before it ever saw any kind of publication online whatsoever. Uh, it creates a tight, swift plot that moves your reader, and that's entertainment. And what you want to do is to entertain, provoke, and excite your reader. And, and you do that by proper structure, a tight plot, well-drawn characters, and a fully developed idea. Let's talk about ideas. Sometimes you have an idea, and it's so freaking exciting that you get up in the middle of the night and you write down your notebook, you hop out of the shower and write down your notebook. I've done that. I've hopped literally out of my shower and wrote down something because I didn't want to forget it. It happens. Then you come back to it later and it's not that hot. It's not that great. It really isn't. So, not all ideas are the stuff of books. Keep that in mind. I wish E.L. James had been so diligent. Oh, oh, my God, I just bashed an author. That's like my total worst thing to do. Don't do that. Oh, my God. And I'm live. I can't even t take it back. Okay, so let's talk. Azor wants to talk about fleshing out scenes. And there are a couple ways to do this. 
what you want to do when you open a scene up is you want to establish the when, the where, and the why. Where are your characters? Why, why, why are your characters there? And when in the plot is it happening? Like, is it early in the day? Is it late in the day? Have, have months passed since your last chapter? You need to establish that. And one of the ways that I established the time stream in um, No Enemy Within, Lantian Legacy, was Miko's pregnancy. When the story starts, Miko is, <laughs> I'm going to use the phrase, barely pregnant. No one knows she's pregnant. It's very new. It's like less than a week old. They, they found out by accident with the livestock detector. They did not know she was pregnant. By the end of that story, she is past her due date. And they have realized that she's going to give birth while they're in travel to their new world. And that's how that ends. So one of the ways that I created a timeline within my story was um, I used Miko's pregnancy. So when you're building a scene, you decide and you demonstrate your where, your why, and your how. And the how is important. How are the characters moving in the scene? How are they looking in the scene? How are they acting in the scene? Is the scene angry? Is the scene happy? Is the scene sexy? You know, whatever you want to do with it, you have to establish that for your reader. So, But you can't tell your reader. You need to show your reader. And one of the worst things you can do is to tell your reader what is happening instead of showing your reader what is happening. When you tell a story... Instead of showing a story, it's boring as fuck, which is a terrible phrase because fuck's not boring. But I think I've already talked about that once before. Anyway, it's boring. Don't do that. Exposition is perfectly okay in small, concentrated doses. It is not okay to ramble on for 15,000, 16,000 words. In fact, it's not okay to do it for more than 1,000 Really, no, really less 500. If you've got more than 500 words of exposition going for you, you're terrible. Shame on you. Stop. <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> but keep it, keep it tight. Keep it simple. Don't, don't spend 15 minutes discussing the color of the wallpaper. There's some very good points. I've seen a lot of published books that actually do way too much exposition. It passes the editing process. What you need to keep in mind is that each publishing house has their own um, style, their own um, in-house method by which all of the books that are published by that house must adhere to. They come out with it. And what that does is it creates a uniform look and feel to all the books that they publish. And these style issues are not just about content. It's about um, the grammar rules that they follow, whether they're doing the APA style or the, the Chicago style. In most fiction houses use Chicago style manual these days, at least in the United States. 
you I'm sorry, the the chat room distracted me for a second there. You anyways, so that happens and when that happens, a lot of times uh books that have a lot of exposition might be left wholly alone because it doesn't violate the established style of the house. And so you can get actually some pretty boring shit. Because once, you know, one person's boring exposition is another person's, oh, that was really awesome. I really enjoyed hearing about 15th century stoves. I don't give a fuck about 15th century stoves. Some people care. Care a lot. I don't. At any rate, that's what happens. Because it's not just one person and a publisher working on a book. The last book I published professionally had five. It was well, my agent, my my. I had like three drafts. My agent sent it back with some changes that she wanted. She encouraged me to make. Um, it went to my editor, and she had two content issues that I had to correct. And I don't know why I couldn't have anal sex in that story. I really don't. Anyways, I removed it. I'm easy that way. Then I went through a grammar edit. If you read my work on my website, you might notice that grammar is not necessarily my strong suit. But I'll be happy to let you know that it's never held me back from getting published. I've never once had a publisher reject me for bad grammar. It's other stuff, like anal sex. I had one tell me I was too dirty once. I know my book got sent there because I am too dirty and I don't give a shit. So, what the hell was I talking about? Anyways, house style can impact the quality and look and feel of a book. And it's more than just, like I said, it's grammar and it's also um, physical structure. Uh, the font is is uniform throughout a publishing house. The font size is uniform throughout a publishing house, unless you're get, like getting large print versus regular print novels. Um, the format is usually uniform through the house. Like, like you know, say you know Harlequin puts out a, the smaller book format, and then the Kensington Brava that does the trade size paperbacks, and that's a house issue as well. And most of the, for the most part, that entire line is put out in trade paperback. For that reason, and all their ebooks look the same, and these are all style points that when you're getting ready to publish, if you if, if you go that way, I encourage you to pick up a couple of books from a publisher to see what they're like, to see what their house style looks like, how their books get distributed, how their books get presented. It's it's important because your book's going to be there if you get published, and you want to be proud of the publication um, that you have in your hot little hand or on your computer or whatever how it goes. So keep that in mind. Okay, I actually picked a bigger topic. I think so. Picked a bigger topic. So oh, we talked about scene structure and chapter structure. Um, earlier when I talked about having short scenes 
to create tension. There are, all, there are other ways to create tension and to create excitement in your work, and that's through uh, short, you shorten everything. You shorten your sentences, you shorten your chapters, you shorten your scenes, you shorten your paragraphs. And that creates a speed, a momentum in your story that allows for action to feel exciting to your reader. The, down, the, the other side of that is, is if you want to slow your reader down, if you want to slow the plot down just a little bit, Make your sentences a little bit longer. Make your paragraphs a little bit longer. Make your scenes a little bit longer. And if you draw it out, it creates this ebb and flow in your story that is relaxing to the reader. They get excited and they go, oh, okay, here's a breather. You know, so what you do, if you, if you do that correctly, you create a very good reading experience for your reader. If you do that incorrectly, you're going to annoy the fuck out of them. So... A lot of writers have a natural rhythm. I have a natural rhythm when it comes to creation. I don't want you to think I sit over here and pop my books out scene for scene. Sometimes I do. It's rare. But what I do do is when I'm creating a story, there is a rhythm to my work. There's a rhythm to the dialogue that I create. And that rhythm is personal to you. And once you find yours, you don't need to worry too much about it. If you feel like you're skipping too much, if you're not giving the details your reader needs, then you need to go back and look at how you're creating your scenes and your scene structure and figure out how to bring more of yourself as a writer to bear, to bring your reader more deeply into the narrative. Because the narrative of your story, the overall theme of your story, is the most important part. When somebody asks me um, what the most, what the theme of uh, ties that bind is, I think a lot of people expect it to me to say, you know, kinky sex or grieving. You know, I don't know. I don't know what they expect, but for me, the Ties That Bind is a love story. It is, it is from beginning to end a love story, and it's about falling in love with somebody who, as cliche as this is going to sound, completes you. It's about finding that partner in your life that brings you to a place where you are content and happy and where love is not difficult because love shouldn't be difficult. Love should be exciting and and memorable and it should make you breathless, but it shouldn't make you mad. <laughs> Love really shouldn't make you mad. It, it should be, I don't want to say, uh, no, I don't want to be a total cliche weirdo, but it's just, and that's what Ties That Bind is about. It's about Rodney's journey not John's. And that's interesting to me because I told Ties That Bind mostly from John's point of view. Rodney's in there a little bit, but for the most part, it's told basically from John's point of view. And yet, it's Rodney's journey. He's falling in love in a place that he never expected to see with the kind of person he never expected to have and in a situation where he's not 
he's still building himself. Rodney's still building himself in ties that bind. He's not quite there. And when he gets there, it's amazing. It's, it's like this. And when I get there, when, when we get there together and we see the end, it's going to be like, oh, right? I hope so. I hope that when I end it and we have those final scenes where where Rodney has gained his feet and accepted that he's fallen in love with John, that it's a a relief to both him and the reader. That and, and that will mean that I've accomplished what I set out to do, and that was to tell a story about a boy falling in love in a very kinky sex world. <laughs> and, and that was the whole point. The thing is, is I do consider myself a... Um, a romance writer, and I know people have problems with that. They 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 degrade it. And whenever I hear some, I see somebody degrading romance, I want to punch them in the face. It's not just because it's the biggest market in fiction, because it is, by the way. It's because I get a lot. I like writing about love and sex and relationships. And to see somebody tear it down because and look on their nose at it, it, it it's infuriating. Um, and I got news for all those people who think that literature, and you know those people, those people who actually enjoyed The Grapes of Wrath, I got news for him. The Grapes of Wrath isn't publishable today. Tell Two Cities wouldn't even get a reading. It wouldn't get past the synopsis stage. It just wouldn't. It's not publishable today. I don't... Xandra's just admitted that she says, she says in the chat room, yeah, I have to hide my love for romance novels secret from my colleagues. I used to. When I was younger, I would keep it. Now I don't. I'll be out in the middle of a coffee shop reading Pirate Lover. (laughs) Whatever, whatever it is I'm reading at the time, I'll I'll bring it right out there. I don't give a shit. Fuck all them. I don't care. It is absolutely nobody's business what you read to begin with. And if they have the audacity to talk about it or to, to question you about it, you tell them to kiss my ass, my ass. You tell them Kira says you can kiss her ass, and fuck off. Or if you can't use language like that. I could make a little card and send it to you, and you can just give them the card. Or you can make out your own cards. I could put a little template up on my website, and you guys can download it and take it over to your print shop at your local place and just print them out and have my name on it in my website because I'm a self-promoter. Yeah. And it can say on it, person who gave you this card wants you to know that you can kiss their ass. Yeah, she says she works in a serious industry of writers. And that's where I'm going to say, no, you don't. You work in a pretentious industry of writers. Or you work with a pretentious and snotty group of writers. I meet writers of all kinds. Um, sci-fi writers and, and nonfiction writers and biography writers and romance writers and YA writers. 
And when you're with someone who genuinely enjoys their craft, no matter what they write, they don't look down on other writers. For the most part, I encounter crap like that from technical writers. Now, I'm going to put this out here, and I don't mean to be rude or cruel, but you know that saying that goes, if you can't do, you teach? When it comes to writing, if you can't write fiction, you write technical writing. And that doesn't put you in a position to judge other fiction writers. It really doesn't. Reporters are people who write for journals and um, stuff like that, people who write technical manuals for, for companies. Uh, if they don't have a side fiction thing, I, I'm not interested in hearing their opinion about my work. I'm really not. Because they might be technically proficient, and they might be good at their job, but in no way do stereo instructions bear even the slightest resemblance to a book of fiction. They really don't. And I don't... That's one of the reasons why... And this is going to sound snotty, and I don't give a shit. This is why I don't take constructive criticism from readers. Number one... I don't know if you're a writer or not, just by looking at your screen name. And number two, nine times out of ten, you have no business giving somebody criticism. I'm serious, you don't. I get <laughs> Feedback is a double-edged sword. There was a time when I was so irritated with the unsolicited, non-consensual feedback I would get on my work, whether it was, oh, you have a typo here, or, oh, I really don't think John would do this. I think you should say it this way. I got so fed up with that shit that I almost turned off comments on my website, which would have been sad because I think that the comment section of my website is what kind of spawned the chat room of my website, and if it didn't have my chat room, that would be really sad, because, you know, there's lots of people who who have met friends there, and that would be really weird, so if it wasn't there, it would be kind of sad. So, it, it opens you up when you accept comments. It opens you up to, to readers in a way that I wasn't necessarily prepared for, because, um, in my professional life, even though I have a website, I don't have a lot of interaction with my readers. Sometimes I get, you know, I get fan mail sometimes, and that's kind of sweet. Sometimes it's kind of weird. It just depends on who's writing it. <laughs> but I don't have a lot of interaction with um, with readers professionally. So when I encounter, when I first encountered it in fandom, I was really put off by it. I was like, I don't need your fucking opinion. I really don't care. Because I, I really didn't. Because, you know, honestly, even with my professional work, there are only certain people I care about as far as if you like it or not, and that's the people who buy it. I mean, like, the agent and my editor. I don't mean the actual readers. And I, that, that's terrible. I know that's terrible. I know. But 
I tend to write for me. And if I'm happy with something, then I'm okay with it. And nobody else's opinion is going to make me feel different about it. You know, and alternatively, alternatively, if I hate something, nobody else's opinion is going to change my mind. I'm going to hate it for the rest of my natural life. I promise. I'm one of those people. I don't change my mind often or maybe not at all, to be perfectly frank. it It's rare. If I did it, it would get written down on the calendar besides the apology I gave that lady last month on Facebook. Joe, are you listening? Yeah, I still mean that apology. My bad. I'm very sorry. Um, <laughs> and it would be on the calendar beside that. Today, Kira changed her mind. It really doesn't happen often. I Once I decide something, it's pretty much a done deal. Because especially when it comes to like things that I hate or, or don't like or don't ever want to see again, or people, and mostly people. I'm going to be perfectly honest. There was a girl who I had an argument with when I was in the third or fourth grade. She lives down the street from my mother, and I haven't talked to her in 35 years, and I have no intention of doing so ever again. Not 35. 20, 20, 29. 29 years. It's been 29 years since we had this argument, and I could not even tell you what the argument is about at this point. But... I'm never speaking to her again, ever. I hold a grudge. That's what people in the South do, just so you know. That could be a character flaw. Your characters need flaws. Keep that in mind. It's just, it's... I I can't help myself. It's how I was raised. You you just, you know... I don't I don't actually remember what the content of the argument was, but I do know that she disrespected me during the argument and that's what stuck with me. And that's what continues to stick with me. And even though we were both like eight or nine years old, I don't know how old we were. I really don't. You know, we could have been old because it's been I don't know. Anyways, I'm not speaking to her. And I'm not going to ever speak to her. And I wouldn't piss on her if she was on fire. And that's terrible. I know. I don't give a shit. So, now that I've talked about scenes and chapters and novels, does anybody in the chat room have a question about it? Because that would be great. I'll be extremely grateful if you did, because I've been rambling for a few minutes here. The chat room um, is is very distracting, and I apologize. Uh, Azur says, I'm a California girl, and I slap a leash on my grudges and take them for a walk. That's exactly how I feel about it. (laughs) That's why I have a big purse. I can carry my grudges around around with me. I, uh... Earlier, when I was talking about grammar... Yes, it is important to have good grammar as a writer. It is not the most important part of being a writer. And I know that might be shocking to some of you, especially you 
grammar Nazis. Um, but I meant it when I said earlier that I have never been rejected for poor grammar. I've never once had an editor say, hey, your grammar sucks, but I couldn't read it. Because that's what editors are for. That's, that's the truth. Um, Jilly asks, question about POV. How rapidly can you change POV in a chapter without affecting flow? It There are a couple ways to answer this question, and I'm going to start it with this. Some people can change a person's can, can change the point of view of a chapter, and it works. There's an easy flow to it, and everything is fine. And some people can't. And I, this is a skill that you learn over time. It, it takes a lot of practice to get there. What I would say is this. You, you need to avoid head hopping. I make it a point to try not to switch POVs more than once in a in a scene. Um, and what you must never do, and I and I really mean this, <coughs> you're going to have in a novel. You're going to have a bunch of characters. It is not appropriate to give every single one of them a point of view. It is best to stick with mostly one person's point of view as much as you can. Now, when you build an ensemble story and you create multiple um, little subplots, you're going to develop scenes where your main characters aren't even present. And when you do, those scenes have to mean something. They have to be important to the flow and the plot of the story. But if you're switching um, points of view five or six times during a scene, that's a real problem. It is a real problem. You need to stop it. Because there is no way for that to be smooth. And there is no way for that not, not to be jarring to your reader. So... If you have a couple characters in a scene, yes, you can change the point of view. You can do it without even breaking the scene or putting a space. You just have to be smooth about it. And you have to do it in such a way. Like, I like to do it on dialogue point. I like to have one person speaking, and then when the POV switches... I have the other person speaking, and I lead that dialogue with a thought so that the reader automatically, okay, now we're in John's point of view because it's something that John's thinking, and Rodney couldn't possibly know this. So when I've switched the point of view in the scene, it is apparent that we're now in John's point of view, and I'll leave it there. And you, and you need to, too. And I mean that you as in general, not to anybody in, you know, in particular. Um, because when you switch back and forth POV a bunch of times in a scene, it's jarring. And there is no ability to have flow when you do that. It's annoying. It's really annoying. Um, and what you don't want to do is to break your scene for a point of view switch. That's it's it's amateur. If you can't switch POV, 
without using a scene break, you have no business trying to switch POV. One of the best ways to master a single person point of view is to write in first person, just as an exercise, because it teaches you a lot about what your character can and cannot know, and that prevents you from head hopping, which is the biggest sin you can make as a fiction writer. It is a huge sin. It's worse than misusing there and there and there. <laughs> oh, shit, my phone's going off. Okay, anyway, so... Head hopping is annoying. Don't do it. If you're going to switch your point of view, try not to do it more than once in the scene. <clears throat> you need to... It has to be smooth. And, when you know, a good way to see if it's smooth is after you've written the scene. Go back and read it out loud to yourself. This is also a very good way to see if your dialogue's stupid. Because if you're saying your dialogue out loud and you're having a problem saying it, that means your character's going to have a problem saying it too. So keep that in mind. And if you've got a problem with your dialogue, you're going to figure it out when you're, when you're reading it out loud. If it sounds stupid or if it's awkward to say, then it's going to be awkward for your characters to say as well. But if you pause at your POV, if when you're reading... And you can record yourself. This is actually a really good exercise. Take a scene that you wrote where you have multiple points of view. And when you're switching your POV in the story, if you pause physically in your narrative when you do that, you've got a problem and you've got a flow issue and you need to work on it. You need to smooth it out, you know, get some you know, smooth and just, you know, you've got some rough edges there that you can – that you can work with and try to figure out how to make them less awkward. <clears throat> Xander was talking about writing a scene, the same scene from two points of view. I know writers that can do this really well, and I know writers who can't. It doesn't matter if you can do it really well. You just shouldn't do it. And this goes back to that whole thing earlier about scenes that are necessary and scenes that are not necessary. There is no reason whatsoever to tell a scene from two different points of view, the same scene, back to back. There is absolutely no reason. And if for some reason you tell the scene, okay, we're going to use John and Rodney as an example because that's just easier than saying character one and character two. Say you tell a scene from John's point of view. But you also want to convey to the reader what Rodney thought about what was happening during the scene. Your opportunity to do that comes in dialogue. Because that is the only interaction that your reader is going to have with Rodney during the scene. If later on, if you feel like you need more information into that scene from Rodney's point of view, what you can do is do a scene break move Rodney to a different location for whatever reason. Maybe he has to go to the lab or, or wherever, whatever he has to do. And have him think about the conversation that he had with John without rehashing it. You don't want to rehash it. But if you have the character think about what's happened, you can fill in his point of view and his 
his opinion about what happened without boring the shit out of your reader. And flashbacks are terrible. There is nothing more annoying to me in fiction than a flashback. Um, I'm bringing this up because someone mentioned it in the chat room. I hate them. I hate them. This is a personal thing for me. Like, I know a, a woman who refuses to read an epilogue. She's of the opinion that if you couldn't put it in the chapter that the, 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 the book's supposed to end on, she doesn't fucking need to know. She refuses to read them. I don't know if she reads prologues either, come think of it. It's weird. But no, I don't use flashbacks. I don't. If I ever have, I've done it reluctantly and because I was told to. I just don't like to do it. I'm a forward and on kind of, kind of girl and a writer. I like to move fast. I like to move towards my goal. I write in a linear fashion. I don't write scenes individually and then mash them together in different formats. And rarely when I'm, when I'm editing do I move a scene from one place to another. It happens. It's just really rare. I don't do that often. So I tend to write scene for scene, chapter, chapter for chapter, how it's going to go throughout the entire novel. That's just how I write. And that's how I write my fan fiction as well. Um, <clears throat> but I really, I really don't like flashbacks. They're boring. They're especially boring if we've already seen the scene. If if we've already been in that scene, we don't need a flashback. We don't need I mean, because your reader it's it's dumbing the work down for your reader when you flashback a scene they've already seen. They don't need to see it again. If they need information from your character about that scene, you can have your character think about it or discuss it with somebody else. Say, hey, you know, John told me this, and I, I think about it, but. You know, and then have Rodney talk to somebody else about what he's experienced in this previous scene with John in a way that doesn't flashback or rehash to the point where your reader wants to stab you in the face. And again, this goes back to creating a situation where your scenes move your plot and your character forward. And if you're stepping back, again and again and again, then you're not actually moving forward. You're standing still. And you don't want to do that in a story. That's just my opinion. Everybody's got one. Uh, but no, I I really don't like um, double, double scenes where you're telling the scene over and over again from different points of view. Or worse, and I saw this recently on fanfiction.net, and I don't know why I was in the pit. Yes, I do. I'm going through a Harry Potter phase where I read a whole bunch of Harry Potter, and unfortunately for myself, there's a lot of Harry Potter on fanfiction.net, so I've been stuck over there for a couple of days. So I can't really write, so I've been just been reading other people's stuff. That's what I do. Anyways... <laughs> I was reading the story, and I won't say what the story is because that's rude. I won't do that. Uh, and it was literally an entire page, and each chapter was somebody else's point of view. And they weren't even scenes. They were reactions to the scene before it. Yeah, let, let, let's let that sink in for a minute. There were 20 of them I counted. 20 paragraphs, 20 different points of view. It isn't the worst thing I saw. The worst thing I saw 
when so and I'm gonna actually paraphrase um, paraphrase this so it's so you can't look for it. I'm gonna change the names and everything. Okay, this is how it went. <clears throat> I can't even do it. It's it, it's so bad. Basically, what happened is is that something terrible happened, and everybody agreed that it was terrible. Literally, everybody agreed that it was terrible. Um, like this. Oh, that sucked, Harry said. And everyone agreed. Do you know what that means? Do you see what the author just did there? Or do you see what I just did there? I gave everybody on earth a point of view in my two-sentence story. Everybody agreed. That implies that the writer has immediate access to everybody on earth, and they all agree that it sucked. <laughs> That's not exactly what she said or what was written, but it's close. Um, and, you know, the only thing worse is giving uh, – and, and this is – this is terrible. This is terrible. And it happens a lot in the Harry Potter fandom. Um, I don't care what Hedwig thinks. <laughs> she's adorable. She's 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 a great um, character in the story. I don't actually give a shit what she thinks. I have I have some um a standout character um, animal character in, in what might have been. Um that's Quark. He's he's a big fat cat, and um, he does weird things like use the elevator. And but I, and I am entirely positive about this. I don't think I've ever actually written a scene from his point of view. I should look. Maybe I have because he developed this kind of weird personality as, as I was writing it. I know there's a scene where he's trying to basically bully Sebastian into um, into submission, and the kid's, like, blackmailing him. <laughs> but I wasn't thinking that it was more like Sebastian. It's, it's, it's in Sebastian's point of view, number one, and he is – he is giving this animal um, traits that he probably honestly does not have. Yes, he's a creepy cat, and yes, he uses the elevator. But I actually had, and Quark's actually, from that particular piece of behavioral issue right there, um, when I was living in college, there was this girl who had a cat, and it was a secret cat. We we weren't actually allowed pets, but everybody in the dorm covered for this cat because we all adored him, and also he was kind of creepy, and we weren't entirely sure he wasn't a demon. (laughs) But he used the elevator. He used the fucking elevator all the time. So when I wrote Quark at the SGC, of course Quark had to use the elevator. I mean, that was just a given. He had to fucking use the elevator. Um, Because this cat did. And this cat would jump up and hit the button. It was the creepiest fucking thing I've ever... I mean, it was creepy. He didn't just do it in the dorm. He would go over to, like, wherever she was in class. And and, and if if he knew where she was, and he often did and it was creepy, he would use that building the elevator as well. It just, it, a demon. The, the, the cat was probably a demon. I'm, I'm just, you know, I'm not even, I'm, I'm an atheist, and I'm telling you right now that cat was probably a demon. But 
animal points of view are are terrible. I don't really care what Hedwig has to say. <laughs> or Fox. I don't care. No, not at all. But, yeah, that's a big problem. <sighs> oh, excuse me. That's a big problem in the Harry Potter fandom is uh, animal points of view. Um, sorry, but, uh, sorry, I got a message, um, but, uh, it's, so, that happens, um, let's see, uh, Dan just wants to ask a question about writing, okay, but, oh, wait, Julie had one first, let's see. Do you set up a POV plan when you start and have an idea of when of when you're going to need different characters and stick to it, or do you fill out which POV you need as you go? It earlier I talked about ties that bind being written from one point of view, and from you know basically I mean, there are a lot of other points of view in ties that bind because there are scenes that John is simply not in, so he would there would be no position to put John in charge of. Um, do it, charge of it, uh, but um, it becomes an instinctual process. I don't, set, I don't assign point of view when I'm building a plot, unless I intend to write the entire thing from first person, like I did with that one creepy story where Rodney stalks John, and um, people were kind of creeped out by it. Because uh, that was, yeah, that was actually the point. Um, but uh, so no, I don't actually make a point of assigning point of view. But what I do do is when I'm coming into a scene, I try to determine what kind of emotional impact I want the scene to have. And when you do that, there are certain characters in your story that are going to lean themselves towards the emotional impact that you want. Like when we're in the courtroom for ties that bind and that's coming up in the next segment, when John is on trial at the sod, uh my first inclination was to make the entire scene from Rodney's point of view. But and I even had that written down in my notes that I would probably do it from his point of view, which I don't often do that, but that was my first thought when I thought about how that scene was going to go. But then I realized that um, it really needed to be from John's point of view. That has more emotional impact because there's going to be questions that Rodney has to answer. And figuring out how or understanding how John responds to these questions is super important to the progress of the story. So, yes and no. I think that instinctually as a writer, the more you write, the more you come to realize what your characters and your story needs. And so these scenes will come to you in a more natural way, and you will know what POV you need to be in um, in automatically. You won't even think about it. I mean, it it won't even be a consideration most of the time. It'll be like, okay, and you and you write the scene and you don't consciously choose 
the POV. It just happens as you write. And that's the, the, the magic of writing is that when you get into a groove and you start to move and write and you start to, to be an instinctual writer, you don't have to make decisions like this. It just it's going to come to you naturally. So, Sandra wants to know, how do you write action without making it blow by blow? I just got the dirtiest picture in my mind. Okay, um, okay, action. The thing is, and you've um, you've actually hit me in, in a weak spot. I don't think I write action particularly well. Um, the one scene that comes to mind for me, um, action-wise, was the scene in Sentinels of Atlantis where John wakes up from a dead sleep and Chuck has been lured out of the city, out into the outskirts of the city by a wraith. And John runs through the city in a practical feral drive. He's a sentinel. And buries a knife in this wraith's head. Um, and so, for me, that was like, that was a, as, that's about as action-oriented as I get as far as a writer, the blow-by-blow um, scene. What I would say about, um, she says, well, porn could be counted as action, even though I was thinking of a fight scene. What I would say about um, writing um, physical action in a scene is that, you have to be careful not to slip into a large narrative because that's going to be boring. And a good way to break that up is to have short, precise dialogue mixed in there so that you don't have paragraph after paragraph of, of, of your characters moving in the scene with no break because your readers will stop reading it and they'll skip it. It's the nature of the... Of the of the human mind. If you have ten paragraphs and no dialogue, they're going to start skipping shit. It's just that's just how that happens. And you'll notice that you do it too when when you um, when when you read that you'll skip things if you you'll skip ahead to a piece of um, dialogue. And you might go back <laughs> back up depending on what the dialogue is, or you might not. I mean, it's just you know. When you yes, when you encounter a, a wall of text, it's it's very uh, uh, annoying, daunting, and your brain will kind of flip you over it into a piece of paragraph, to a piece of dialogue. So keeping that in mind, um, if you don't want to write out a scene where every single action is is scrutinized and put into place, what you can do is, um, and you have to do this sparingly. You have to make. When it comes to sex, you can kind of um, fade to black, close the door, as um, people say in the in the romance industry, and close the door sex, which means that the reader assumes that sex happened. You alluded to the fact that sex happened, but you don't show the sex happening. You just move to the next scene. Um, it's not fun. It's not even entertaining. Um, I. When I'm reading something and I've been told that there's going to be love in there, I expect some cock. I do. I expect cock. What you want to do when you're building a scene um, with action is to keep your character moving. 
make your character's movements precise, make his motivations known. It uh, you there are ways you can surprise your reader, and there are ways you can confuse your reader. You don't want to surprise your. <laughs> Thank you, Sandra. You don't want to surprise your reader in the middle of a fight scene in a bad way. So what you want to do is to create your anticipation with short sentences and short paragraphs and tight dialogue, and when you move into the final act, which in that scene where John is um, running through the city and he's going to kill this wraith, the, the the climax of that scene is when John when John stabs that wraith in the head. When he plants his his knife in that wraith's head, that is uh, the the high of the scene, and then you go low. And he's coming down off an adrenaline rush, and the scene is coming off off an adrenaline rush as well. So you have this sweeping down, and then Rodney is there to take care of John. And Bates, he squats down in front of John. And there's this moment where he's like, yeah, that was some badass shit, even if he didn't say it, you know. And um, so it, it was just... And Bates kind of smooths that scene out at the end. And so you've created a scene where you had, you know, Boom, 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 and then climax, and then a slow tread down, and then a little bit of humor at the end with Bates, and that completes the scene in a way that is satisfying to your reader. It moves the plot, and you're ready to go to the next scene. Everything's been accomplished. And of course, you know, then later on, when Lauren and Keller are in the. Wait, I'm not sure which scene that was. I'm not sure when she. I did a race. I'm sure she's done it several times in that story, but I only highlighted it once where she takes the race apart. I think it's the one where Rodney killed it with his brain. I don't really remember. Anyways, <clears throat> so building action. You can make sweeping generalizations about what's happening. Like you can say, you know, instead of like, It's kind of hard to explain because it, because it, it's just a natural process for me, and I'm sorry I'm not articulating this well. Uh, it's I'm just I'm not I can't I can't bring I I can't I don't even know. Um, <laughs> sorry, it's just it's it's weird. It's a it's a natural process, and what you need to do is you need to write write often. Write every day, and the more you write, the better it will come from you and the more natural it will be. And yes, when you first start writing, when I first start wrote, when I first started writing, my dialogue was awkward, my paragraph structure sucked, um, my scenes were all over the place, and there were no goals, and there was shit that didn't need to be there. But it's a process you, that you learn. And there comes a point when you've internalized your process so much that it's difficult to express how you do some things. Like some things are easy to talk about. Like when you're talking about somebody who has an accent and you don't want to mangle their dialogue to the point where it can't be read, you can describe their accent in a way that brings a auditory memory to your reader. So you don't have to 
mutilate your dialogue to express that someone has a has a southern accent or has a New York accent or um you can actually just say somebody's from New Jersey and automatically their accents in your reader's brain if they're American and you don't have to do anything else because they're gonna hear everything that person says in a New Jersey accent because everyone we know what that sounds like. You know, so you can create um characterization through sense memories in that respect. You can bring in um, sight and smell sense memories into the narrative that your reader will be familiar with, and that helps you build um, your character and your scene without a whole lot of commitment from you and a whole lot of weirdness as well. And so it it cuts down on the awkwardness. Lady Holder's on the phone. Let's see what she has to say. Hello, oh, Lady you know, Holder. It's always a hello. How are you? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, always a good time. Um, I'm listening to all of this, and it's interesting how uh, how everything um, is dependent on each other. Because my first writing sucked. I really felt like. Um, the, the C. Dick uh, and, and Jane Run um, stories, that was about the same level I was at the first time I wrote, I felt, <laughs> at least. And, you know, it's sometimes you got to do that, okay? And, you know, eventually um, it got better as far as, uh, you know, writing action and sex and and other things like that, you know, where life happens, um, a lot of action takes place off scene, you know, or people know what a punch looks like when it gets thrown, so you don't have to describe that, thankfully. Um, Space battles are a pain in the ass. Uh, I don't know what else to call them. Um, I found when I write my own sex scenes, they're not arousing. They're boring. Um, I'm the exact opposite. (laughs) That's the truth. I don't. Sorry. I know we had a sex scene and then had to go take care of some stuff. I'm just saying. Like, woof! That was exciting. Well, (laughs) it also it also happens to depend on where I'm doing it and and how invested I am. Because unfortunately, as I'm writing sex scenes, I'm also I'm normally at work. So the thought of getting aroused at work around my coworkers is a complete non-starter. You know, <laughs> it's just no thanks. I'll pass on that. <laughs> you know. Um, oh, Vandras, fight, 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 surprise cock. No, I don't want to know See? that. See? <laughs> yeah. Okay. Um, there's a lot of, of things that I learned because... I wrote. Um, it also helped that I'm a voracious reader, and after yes. a while, if you don't start picking up the mechanics of what a good plot is, um, the fuck are you doing reading? You know, or what? Really? Or what are you reading? C- comes to mind. Yes, that too. I consider reading <laughs> a part of my job as a writer. Uh-huh. Um, you pick up a lot more than you think if you read a lot, mm-hmm. and that can be bad and good depending on what you're reading. 
I know you pick up scene structure, you pick on format, mm-hmm. you pick up dialogue mm-hmm. mechanics, you pick up um, the structure of a novel, yes, or you cannot, depending on what you're reading. So if you're There's a young one author a, I know of. aspiring writer, don't read on fanfiction.net. <laughs> oh, my God. It's not no. good for you. It's bad. It's crack. That is crack, and you're not allowed crack until you've been a writer for at least 10 years and you've established yourself because then you won't be influenced poorly. <laughs> um, one of the one of my favorite authors, and I know I'm not going to name him, and it is a him, and no, it's not the guy who does Game of Thrones, um, <laughs> is a very exposition-heavy writer. Mm-hmm. And he... One of the things he likes doing is describing things down to, in some cases, the stitching of the uniforms. And so I'm sitting there and reading this, and after a while, your, your eyes start to glaze. Um, yeah. And the, three, yeah, the threesome scene did not get written at work. <laughs> um, no, that one actually I think got written in Denny's. Uh, but, you know, it's, it's um, another one. A well, Daryl Hannah uh, starred in the movie that was the only movie made out of that series of books. And oh, again, oh, the Bear, our children. I wasn't going to mention her. Yes, talk Gina about exposition heavy. It's ex- yeah, it is seriously exposition heavy. I had no idea that's what went into um, skinning an animal, but now I do. I, I am pretty to, sure yes. I could take her books and survive. I could make my own soap. I could, I could, I could tan my own leather. <laughs> if, if the end of the world ever comes, I've got all those I books. Am I'm holding on to taking those books. my set of first children. <laughs> yes, I have them all, but the last one, and they will be coming with oh, me. I do because. Uh huh. Hello. Oh, there was some. There was a little bit yeah. of dialogue. There was some grunting. <laughs> It's great for learning herbal medicine and kinky sex. Yes, it is. Um, that was actually I, Valley of the Horses was my introduction to oral sex. Because, oh, you know, as a, young, as a young reader, my mom let me read Harlequins, which have no sex in them really at all. I mean, there's sex, but there's not no. really any description of the sex. And so oral sex <laughs> might have been alluded to in these books I was reading, but I wasn't getting it. I didn't understand what was happening. And I was like 13 when I read Valley of the Horses, and I read it. Twelve. And I was like, uh, um. Really? So I go go to my mother, and (laughs) she had given me a book called The Female Orgasm when I was 10. And mostly it was a book about (laughs) masturbation. Um, Uh And I read it. I read it and read it and read it and read it a lot. Um, at any rate, I took this to my mother and I give her the the book and I said, "Would, would you read that?" And um, she read it and she said, "Well, I had no idea this was in this book." And I said, "I didn't either." And she's like, well, "Do you have questions?" And I'm like. Do all men do this, and is it as awesome as it sounds? <laughs> she went, not all men do that. Not not all men do, but good men do. And yes, it is as awesome as it sounds. Oh, it's okay, fine, thanks. I took my book away, and I and I finished the book. But yeah, 
Um, the, the bad thing with my family is we tend to store books in boxes, and my family has moved. We've stored books in boxes in the garage, and they left me alone in the garage with the books in boxes. Um, Joy of Sex was really interesting. Way over my head, but really interesting. Then I discovered Clan of the Cave, Bear Valley, the horses, and all of it all of a sudden made sense. What, <laughs> what, I'm trying, what I'm actually trying to get at is of, I think there's five or six books, my favorite two out of those massive books is Valley of the Horses and Mammoth Hunters. And it's a, a very specific love because there's interaction, there's building. The, the characters, Ayla and Jean Delar, change more in those two books than they did, it felt like, for all the rest of them. Okay? Um, they grew, they, they loved, they, they did things, they lived and it was all, there was interaction. Unlike, you know, Planes of Passage, which was copy and paste a travel monologue of how to travel across Europe on horseback. Just forget <laughs> it. <laughs> I actually enjoy Planes of Passage. I, um, I like Valley of the Horses. Mammoth Hunters made me uncomfortable because I was a romantic. Even as a very young woman, yeah. I, was, I was very romantic. And I didn't like it when they separated and she was with the other man. I thought, oh, no, mm-hmm. that's not right. And it kind of upset me. And I was young. Now it wouldn't upset me at all. I see it from a psychology uh-huh. point of view. And, but, but then I thought it was like she was cheating. But really, uh-huh. in what you learn about her character is that she really didn't know she had a choice. Nope. This man expressed sexual interest in her, and she felt like it was her duty to allow it. Mm-hmm. That, because that's what she had been taught. Yep. And that's terrible, actually. Um, but as a young person, I didn't get that. So Mammoth Hunters made me uncomfortable, and I've only ever read it once as a result. <laughs> Clan of the Caper freaks me out every time, so I'll pass on that one. Mm. I didn't the at the time understand what was going on. I was very naive, and my mother had not, I mean... She told me about stranger danger uh-huh. and all that stuff, but I really did not equate uh-huh. what was happening to Elia in the in the first book as rape. Uh-huh. But it was. And under her culture. And so but I really like didn't see it that way as as a as a as a tween. I was 12 when I read the first book. Um yeah. Here's, and, here's a but point. now I look at it and like, "Oh my god, that's just that, that that's just yeah. almost all rape." Yeah, here's the whole book is for, just... for everybody. I know it's horrible. Um, for for what we grew up reading them, our point of view changed as we aged. We noticed more things um, started making more sense, and plot points that we skimmed over as as teens and tweens, as adults. They make more sense. I mean, you you use the Harry Potter universe. That's another one where, you know, things that that, um, we skimmed, you know, or we read and and it didn't click. When you look at it now, I don't think Rowling ever thought about it. But then again, she was an adult writing a kid's point of view. Yeah. But you know what? She should have thought about it. And I think one of the most irresponsible things I've ever heard her say 
or have heard that she did say, and I've never actually seen the interview where she said it, where she said that Harry Potter wasn't abused. Oof, she tied. Um, Xandris, you, you have a point. Uh, I remember that that whole thing, but yeah, it's weird shit. Um, it's not something I'm comfortable with it being in the plot, although I've read stuff with it since. Um, it's kind of amazing how plot can, if it's done right, can carry you along. And it's not until you're done with the book or the series that you realize sometimes what you read. You know, I don't how think does, how does I was a few months you? out from reading Deathly Hallows when I realized the entire. Mm-hmm. Theories was leading up to Harry's suicide, mm-hmm. and I was horrified. I was absolutely horrified by it. Um, yeah, there's. But, um, yeah. I want to. I want to say some, one thing about this Harry Potter was an abuse thing, and I've, I've I've heard this attributed to her several times that she said it. I've, like I said, I've I've never seen the interview either in print or in um, audio where it was said. So I don't know if it's actually true, if it's an urban legend. But uh-huh. even if you dismiss all the fan and, and the assumptions that are made by fans about what happened to Harry, and even if neither one of them ever hit him. Oh, Jesus. Even if they didn't, even mm-hmm. if there was never any physical abuse whatsoever. They mm-hmm. kept him in a cupboard that they locked mm-hmm. from the outside, mm-hmm. and they used him like slave labor. Mm-hmm. That is abuse and should be the considered abuse by any rational person. Yep. They emotionally neglected yep. him, yes. Mm-hmm. But you can't put somebody in a closet and leave them there and not consider it abuse. Even if you dismiss all the fanon, Harry is verbally and emotionally abused and he's physically neglected and he's used like slave labor and he's kept in a cupboard. That's canon. Mm -hmm. And if J.K. Rowling doesn't consider that abuse, I'm really worried about her kids. Yeah. Going off onto a different tangent here, um, (laughs) I mentioned this last week, uh, and I'll mention it this week. You actually plot, physically plot everything out. You get it down on paper. Um, A lot of times, yes. The closest I do to, yeah, the closest I do to that is what I occasionally do where I rough plot out a scene where there might be 50 to 100 words that hit the highlights and what comes out from, you know, my my fingers afterwards might be 5,000 words, but the highlights are all, you know, like on one page of a notebook. And so, you know, for me, it's it's not... I know my my, you know, beginnings, middles, and ends but they're not on paper. And that 
goes back to how different you and I are on our writing styles. You called me a seat-of-the-pants writer. Um, mm. And you're right. Okay? So it makes it more interesting some days. I, and so, yeah. What I would say about people uh, is that when you're developing your process, whether you are someone who has to write everything down or make a plan, or whether you're mm-hmm. someone who can't plan at all, and... Um, which can lead to rambling, which is perfectly okay if you're on Blog Talk Radio, but you shouldn't ramble <laughs> in your story. Um, so when it comes time to editing, you need to be prepared to cut your rambling. Just cut it out. Copy paste it into a new document yeah. if you don't want to get rid of your words. I know how it is to love your words, but they can't stay. They don't got to go home, I'm... but they can't stay there. <laughs> yeah, um, the, the homework assignment... I'm I'm not that far into it, but it's going to be interesting um, when I submit and see what comes back from editors and, and the like and, and where there has to be trimming because it's going to happen. It's That's a kind of a standard across the board, you know. Um, well, I've had experience in editing where I've actually cut stuff and been told to add more. Mm-hmm. Um, I once cut 10,000 words from a professional project and turned around and added 20 more based on editorial okay. suggestions. So mm-hmm. um, the editing process isn't just one way. It isn't cut and dried no. one way. It it goes both. And oftentimes mm-hmm. when you're in the editing process, and much like a beta relationship, if your editor asks the right question, it can spawn an entire new scene to answer that question. Mm-hmm. Or it can yep. result in the deletion of an entire scene or an expansion mm-hmm. of a scene or a change of a single sentence that changes the entire scene's nature. And when you do that, you have to be mm-hmm. careful because scenes build on each other. So when you have a scene and then the nature changes in that scene during editing, you have to go to the scene before it and the scene after it to make sure they still come together, that, that there's a merger there that, that allows the scene to be organic in its placement. Because if you've changed the nature of a scene, the ones on either side of it are super important. Because if the change um, creates a situation where your flow isn't organic, it's going to put your reader off. And they might not even know why or, or what mm-hmm. happened, but they'll be uncomfortable. The The narrative will, will become uncomfortable. The, the reader's okay. trance can get broken. It's, right, it's something exactly. That I know, I, it's something that I know I did with my homework assignment where I, at the start of it, stuffed a whole new scene in with a whole uh, bit of drama that was basically put there for that scene, and I needed to, when I put that in, I had to relate it back to what was happening later in the story, but I also had to make sure that the echoes and results of that first scene, what was now the first scene, the thing that had gotten inserted, worked its way all the way down the line because it was something that was important from, you know, the the first word of the story all the way to the very last. And so, you know, it, um, 
something I find difficult for me is after a while, I don't, I don't see the errors in my own writing. I don't see where I'm missing words. I don't see where I've got choppiness. Um, oh, no, you won't. You won't. And, you won't at all. No. Um, once you get to that point, and you never will again, because I don't. A lot mm-hmm. of times, it, sometimes I, I have something, something aside for like six months. I won't set a book aside for six months because there was something wrong with it, and I literally could not see what it was, but I knew reading it there was something wrong. Mm-hmm. So I put it away, and I came back to it six months later, and within the first two chapters, I knew immediately what, what was putting me off. But I had to separate mm-hmm. myself from it to get to get to that point. Mm-hmm. Hamster asks, "How do you feel when you're told to cut parts of your story?" It doesn't bother me. There was a time I when I was a very young writer, and it was terrible. It was the worst thing that could possibly ever happen to me. How am I going to live? But now, even though I love myself and I love my words, I understand that I am producing a product, and it might be my story, my book, my mm-hmm. favorite thing on earth at that very moment, but it's somebody else's product. So when you mm-hmm. sign a contract and you go under, um, you you put yourself at the mercy of a publisher's house style, you mm-hmm. have to accept that your work will be edited to fit that publisher's house style and that you could be mm-hmm. required to cut out anal sex. <laughs> Mm-hmm. Or, or whatever. That. And the thing is, re- is you're being I paid remember. to do this. Mm-hmm. Yeah. It's, um, now, understand, I haven't read all the way through the, the results of the homework assignment. I don't know if there's mm. an area in there that I've been told to cut. I'm willing to bet there's at least a couple. And I know there's areas where, and because I skimmed briefly to see what some of those comments were that, that are scattered throughout it, but I know that I've been told, you know, cut certain sentences, you're awkward here, why is this? And there's enough distance between the time I wrote it and finished it and today that I can look at it and go, okay, you're right, all right? Um, And I've gotten used to that even with the beta stuff that I've done where I turned over – you know, the the fan fiction I've written, and it's come back and I've got, you know, question marks with, what in the hell were you thinking? And, well, a professional editor probably... What the actual fuck was that? Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) Well, while a professional editor cannot say what Kira just said, or at least... Oh, they can. No, don't don't think that. No, don't think that, because... um, yeah, I've gotten some pretty foul language back from an editor. So, so no, no, they're people and they're terrible. They're terrible people. Okay. Editors are in general. Um, it's it's in this instance. Um, what you said here, you know, I'm, um, I'm used something. To it. You you said um, distance helped you see, and that's something that I, I encourage you to to approach. Um, a project, whether you're being edited or, or whether you're in a beta process with a, with another person, who might not be able to convey what they mean in a way that is nice. I spoke with somebody in chat, or it might have been in an email, I don't remember, where they talked about how they had an extremely harsh beta, and it put them off writing, and it really hurt them and upset them, and they stopped writing altogether. 
for a very long time. Um, mm-hmm. And I don't know what the circumstances were for this beta, if the beta meant to be cruel. And that happens. Sometimes you encounter people in fandom who are just assholes. And I would just, mm-hmm. above a board vice, just don't let assholes get to you. And if assholes get to you too much, just let me know and I'll cuss them out for you. Um, Because I am more than willing to do that for you. I am more than willing to call somebody out on my live journal and say, fuck you, I can't believe you did this. Uh Anyways, anyway, um, even if I don't use their name, they'll know it's about them. Uh (laughs) But distance. You need to distance yourself from your work. You need to distance yourself emotionally and intellectually from your work in order to give your work the best possible finish. Mm-hmm. And you need to keep in mind that neither beta nor editing is personal. Mm-mm. They're not out to get you, unless they are. They're not out to make your life difficult or be mean or cruel, unless they're just an asshole. And you will know there's a difference. The only thing I would say in fandom that happens in fandom that does not happen when you're dealing with an editor is I have never once encountered an editor who tried to write my book to suit them. And that happens in fandom. You'll come across a beta who um, thinks the idea would be better if it worked their way, and then they'll put all these comments into your work trying to shape your story into something they want versus what you wanted. And when that happens, you can ignore them. I mean, just ignore them. Just ignore that shit. Mm -hmm. And that's a good rule of thumb in all of beta. When you're with somebody in your beta, it's, um, take it as suggestions. Guidelines. It's like Mm -hmm. a guideline. Yeah. Don't take any beta's correction or suggestion as the gospel, if you believe in that kind of shit. I had, yeah, I had one, um, one time I got asked to beta somebody. And when I found myself basically rewriting because of shift tenses and uh, POV changes in the same sentence and... I've encountered that before, too. It's horrible. Yeah. And I, I mean, I, I was very, I, I was very harsh in a way when, actually, I was big blunt. I was very harsh when I laid out why I was stopping it because I didn't want to, I didn't want to do that to somebody. Okay. And it's, it's not my place to rewrite somebody's story. I was not their, their second author. I was not the person who was coming in to ghostwrite what they had written, okay? Um, and so I handed it back, okay? And um, talk about having to be a grown-up about it because, you know, that wasn't my story, all right? So it was not a um, – it wasn't pleasant, all right? It wasn't pleasant for me. And unfortunately, it wasn't pleasant for the author. So, yeah. I once, and this is a personal, like, real-life experience, not online. Um, 
I mean, we were in the same room at the same time. Okay, this woman mm-hmm. hands me this women's fiction novel. And I don't actually read a lot of women's fiction. I've read enough. I read Bridget mm-hmm. Jones. That counts, right? Mm-hmm. And I read Good in Bed, which was a really good book, by the way. Good in Bed. I forget who wrote it. Me. Awesome book. Um, I read uh, The Divine Secrets of the Gaga Sisterhood and uh, okay. uh, The Help. I read The Help. I think that's women's fiction as well. Mm-hmm. Anyway, I don't read a lot, but apparently I read more than I thought. <laughs> and she yes, hands me this book, and she asked me, she asked me to um, to give it a read and to give. Um, she asked me basically to edit this book for her. Oh Jesus! So I devoted about a month of my life on paper, mm-hmm. no less, because um, she couldn't send me a digital file, and. Um, Ick. And I met her, and I gave it to her, and about a week later, you know, I see her again. I wasn't going to ask her, because I honestly don't give a shit what she thought. Mm-hmm. I don't know what I thought, because she asked me. I didn't ask her. Didn't uh-huh. care. Still don't. She was furious with me for correcting her <laughs> grammar yep. <laughs> and her format. Uh-huh. And questioning her plot, and about halfway through yeah. this book, I wanted her her, her heroine to die. <laughs> uh-huh. It was written in first person. It was yep. terribly whiny. It was written in first person, but she kept straying in the second person, which is infuriating. Um, and I pointed out all those places where she did second person, uh-huh. and. Yeah. She was furious with me. She was furious, and she said, and I don't even know why I asked you. You're just a a romance writer. Oh, Jesus Christ. Um, and my best yeah. friend at the time, um, I haven't seen her in months, but she moved to another part of the country. Um, mm-hmm. Snotty Chicklet writer, she was with me. And ah, um, she, okay. she um, lost her shit on this woman. I and um, she did. Yeah. And um, I just, I didn't, I didn't care. I didn't care. And I'm like, mm-hmm. at the end of it, and she said, this is something about um, selling out to get published. And I said, I didn't sell out to get published. I got published to get paid. Mm-hmm. Yep. I don't care if I'm famous. I don't care if I'm ever on the New York bestseller list. Um, I sell my work so that I don't have to work for somebody else. Mm-hmm. And that is the only yeah, reason. If um, I had another source of income, I'd probably have all my work online for free because I don't give a shit about that part of it. Mm-hmm. I really don't. <laughs> and that's what that wolf down to. <laughs> um, one of the things for me is, the homework assignment for me, it's validation that I can write. It's not a absolutely must get my, my you know, work out in print and I have to see my name in light type thing. I mean, it's nice, but it's not the reason why I'm doing this. Okay? And I think that makes it a little bit easier even though I'm spazzing about it because, you know, it's, it's important to me. So, yeah. And it looks like we got okay. a little less than We got minutes three left. minutes left. 
three minutes and 30 seconds. Okay. And I want to share a little story with you guys about Walmart and my mother. My mother oh boy. Um, was um, in Tennessee today, and um, I went to see her. And uh, it's her birthday. And I, hmm. uh, she turned to surprise 60 today. And so we're in Walmart. Don't ask why. I forget why. So we're in Walmart. And this woman, she had to be in her late 40s, walks by, wearing this pair of shorts. Her ass cheeks are hanging out. (laughs) Oh, Jesus. People of Walmart. Yeah, I'm staring, and my mom's staring. And she's got to be 45-ish, and maybe 30 or 40 pounds overweight, and I don't care if you're overweight. I'm a little overweight myself. I don't give a shit. But I dress appropriately to cover my stuff. I cover my stuff. I'm almost I'm close to 40. I'm 30-ish. <laughs> I yeah. don't let my ass hang out. And I'll tell you right now, even when I was 22 and I had an awesome ass, I was letting it hang out of shorts, okay? Anyways, so my mom's looking at this woman, and I'm looking at this woman, and we don't even look at each other. And we both did what I like to call the universal sound of of Southern disapproval, which goes like this. Mm -mm, mm -mm, mm -mm. At the same time. (laughs) Yes. And I looked at her, and she looked at me, and my mom lifted her fist up for a fist bump. (laughs) You know, the alternate version that I remember, the alternate version I remember um, is the one where, you know, it's that tisking noise, you know, Mm -hmm. tisk, 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 and, and, you know, it's it's not exactly subtle. The humming thing gets to be a little bit more subtle, you know, (laughs) but. But that's the universal sound of Southern disapproval. Uh-uh, uh-uh, uh-uh. Yeah. Uh (laughs) Which is like, no, 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 Uh no, no. Uh, and and but, you know, yeah, you, so you my got mom the, got a fist bump on her 60th birthday in the middle of Walmart in Tennessee. Um, your mom is younger. Than we my were mom. Uh, outside ridiculous. of uh, Chattanooga today, and I was on the road <laughs> half the night to come, half the day to come home. So whatever. But anyways, we're coming down to the wire. I want to thank everybody for being in the chat room and being entertaining, and Lady Holder for giving me a call because I was Always. rambling and. I will uh, see you guys next time. (laughs) All right. Talk to you later. Bye. Shut up and sit down.
Can't wait for summer? Old Navy's huge summer sale starts now. All jeans, all tees, all dresses, and all shorts are on sale up to 50% off. Jeans start at $15 for adults, $10 for kids. Shorts from $12 for adults, $7 for kids. Buy online and pick up in-store for free today. All jeans, tees, dresses, and shorts are on sale up to 50% off. Now at Old Navy and OldNavy.com. Valid 5-6 to 5-12. Excludes in-store clearance. Active license men's packaged and flag tees. 500 vehicles to sell, 500 ways to save. One month only at Build Penny Toyota during Mega Memorial Month. Now through May 31st. That means mega deals on your favorite Toyota models from Alabama's number one volume Toyota dealer. And don't forget every new vehicle comes with our 10-year unlimited warranty. Plus, enjoy the rest of our awesome Penny perks. Visit BuildPennyToyota.com during Mega Memorial Month. Number one based on 2018 total new Toyota retail sales in Alabama for Southeast Toyota distributors. Warranty valid through 10th year of ownership on new vehicles only. See dealer for details. 